Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and we are here for you. Specifically, this week, we are here to talk you off the ledge as we all anxiously wait and work towards the November elections. In today's podcast, we will give you information and ammunition to help you stay sane, lower your blood pressure, talk your friends off the ledge, and give you some facts and analysis that will hopefully sustain you and help you focus your energy and efforts in these final weeks before Election Day. And for those of us on the West Coast, as the Democracy in Color team is, we're trying to do all this while staying safe from a global pandemic and then dealing with wildfires forcing mass evacuations in Oregon and choking the sky with smoke, making the air unhealthy for all of us, blocking the sun from coming up one day where it's like dark literally all day long, all of which reinforces just how interconnected we are on this planet. Really reminds me of a speech that Jesse Jackson gave after the Chernobyl nuclear power plant disaster in the 1980s in Russia. I'll never forget Jesse saying, we thought it was just a Russian problem, and then the wind blew. And really showing how we are all connected, right? It ties back to what Martin Luther King's, uh, what he wrote in his letter from Birmingham jail. He says, we are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. So what these weather crises show is that we are all truly interconnected on this planet, and we are definitely in a single garment of destiny when it comes to climate change. But to deal with that and a lot of other issues, we have to first win this election. So let's get into that discussion. For that conversation, I'm joined by my co-host, Charlene Chang. Charlene, how are you guys holding up during our pandemic and smoke-filled days and all the other stuff that we're grappling with. Yes, we're, we're hanging in there, Steve. I appreciate you asking. You caught me on a good day because today is one of the first days in a while where we can actually see the sun, see blue skies. And one of the first days uh, yesterday and today where we can go out and take a walk and the air is pretty much smoke-free. Today and yesterday, the air has been more or less what they call green level, if you'll have these air quality apps, and that's the best level, whereas for most of the past three weeks, it's been orange or red, and we have just primarily been in our house, in quarantine, <laughs> mm -hmm. as if, you know, it just has been um, pretty trying and definitely testing everybody's levels of patience with each other. And for me as a parent, I think a lot about my daughter's generation and how she will soon not be able to remember a end of the summer season and fall season where smoke in the air and smoke causing one's family to have to stay indoors for many days in a row is just not the norm because that's wow. the norm of oh, these past few years and this year being the most severe. So for example, every day, one of the first things she'll ask me is, mom, can you check the phone and tell me what the air quality is going to be like so that she can get a sense if she's going to get to be outside at all. Wow. And um, that's what kids are uh, living in, in terms of a reality now. And yeah, just like you, I, my heart really goes out to all the people who are, have been directly affected by the wildfires, uh, especially right now. I've been thinking a lot about those in Oregon. They're just having this unprecedented devastation from the fire and such unprecedented levels of hazardous smoke in the air far beyond um, what we definitely here in the Bay Area have had to experience. And uh, I'm also always thinking about the most vulnerable population in those areas that have been affected by the fires, because really the majority of those people are 
people of color. So when we talk about for those who are unable to acquire steady housing, thinking about a lot of women and children, a lot of those are people of color and a lot of people whose livelihoods depend on working outdoors. So they have no choice. It's either continue to work outside or can't put food on the table. And a lot of those type of workers are people of color. Yeah, definitely. And just with the air quality thing, right? So we're all looking at our phones and it's like, you know, if it's below 100, that's okay. Hopefully it should be like 20 or 50. Then it goes up to like, you know, 190, 200. And it's like, oh my God. In Portland, it was 500 in terms of the air quality piece. Can't can't even imagine. And, you know, I've got friends up there in Oregon. It's just been kind of mind-boggling. It's been happening. So when it, one of my friends, Ruby Reed, is a you know political activist, used to be in the Bay Area, moved up to Oregon. She had to flee and evacuate her home, and her home burned to the ground, as well as her wow. business. She has a small business. Wow. And she's literally been living in a Motel 6 um, and just trying to rebuild. But, yeah, it's grateful she's alive, but that's just the level of the intensity. And then, as you mentioned, right, a lot of people either if you're homeless or you have to work outside, particularly like farm workers, et cetera, you're forced to be out in these bad conditions. And so I do want to encourage people to, if you want to be helpful to support those relief efforts that are really targeting people forced to be outside. So one of my high school friends, Dana Buell, she lives up in Portland and she's a social justice activist. And she recommends people give to a Latino organization called PCUN. And we'll link to that in the show notes that provides personal protective equipment and support to the farm workers uh, up in Oregon. Right. And again, that's PCUN. Thanks, Steve. Uh, Before we jump into today's main topic, and because Steve, I realize I kind of feel like I just went to a doom and gloom place, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is kind of easy these days. But I always do try to remind myself and put out intentions and verbalize the fact that I'm aware that there is also a lot of light going on simultaneously. So Those two things always go on at the same time. We just need to remind ourselves that. So on that note, I wanted to take a moment and just really deeply appreciate and give a big shout out to all of our listeners. So listeners, I wanted to thank each and every one of you for tuning in and listening and subscribing and telling your friends and family about our show. Because today is our, I'm pretty sure I got the math right on this when I counted back, but today is our 26th episode. Steve, I know I was counting and I was like, oh my gosh, we've done so many. And our next episode, Steve, will mark our one year anniversary of this podcast. Seems like just yesterday. (laughs) Yeah, but also seems sometimes a long, long time, but it's just so exciting. I mean, what it's such a milestone. And I just wanted to let our listeners know that we just could not do this without you. We would not do this without you. It's You guys are the reason we do this. We just feel like it's such an honor to be creating and putting out the one, if not only, color-conscious political podcast. And we are just so grateful for your listenership and your comments on social media, the email and feedback we get from all of you about what the show means to you and how much you get out of it. You really keep us going. And I think collectively, you guys are all alight. And we are so grateful to be working on how to figure out making this country a better place that works for all of us. So thank you. Yeah, we really appreciate everybody. It's always so fascinating to hear little stories from people about how many people are listening to different parts of our life. Like, so Susan was texting with her hairstylist about that can go back to work, et cetera. And then the person says, oh, I heard on the podcast where, you know, I think something may have happened. And so are you doing okay? You're right. I was kind of like, oh my God, people are really listening and listening carefully and paying attention. And so it really is very gratifying. We put a lot of time and energy into it. And so really getting that feedback means a lot. We, I'm glad that people appreciate it. And um, we really uh, wanted to mark this moment. 
Yeah, for sure. So, Steve, you had said earlier you're going to talk us off the ledge, and I'm really glad because I am definitely one of those people who finds myself on that ledge. <laughs> and as, as election day nears, and it really increasingly feels like we're in that movie, and the music is going dun dun dun. Right. And I know I've told you a number of times how I have, you know, just this anxiety about what's going to happen in the election. And you're talking about wanting to name this uh, episode, Are We Going to Win? And I said, oh, my God, that uncertainty is like, it just gives me the shivers. It makes me you know, want to curl up in a fetal position. And so what is it that you can say to reassure so many of us? Because so many of us feel like, oh, how is this going to happen? How are we going to win? Yes. And, and it's not just you. Actually, it was fall of 2016 where my doctor is all like you know your blood pressure is kind of high and i'm all like well maybe it's this election right and so <laughs> and that was 2016 yes exactly it's been four years since <laughs> then. seems like a baby election compared to okay so let's start with the headlines to frame all this up and then we'll dive into it in the episode if we have a free and fair election biden should win in a near landslide but Trump and the Republicans are doing everything they can to stop it from being free and fair, right? actively working to destroy the machinery of democracy. In the case of the post office, in some cases, actually destroying the machines that, that sort and sift the mail to slow down delivery so absentee ballots won't arrive in time. Widespread voter suppression being planned and conducted, lawsuits, disinformation. So you have this massive, well-funded, presidentially sanctioned effort to stop as many people from voting as possible. So that's the dynamic. So then the work of the next seven weeks is to support those working to fend off the attacks on our democracy and to back the groups helping people navigate these multiple obstacles being put in their way. And I'm pretty optimistic about how these efforts are going. I spent the past month doing a very deep dive on a lot of the election protection efforts and election administration as well as seeing what groups are doing, what work where. So obviously we can't take anything for granted. And we really need to redouble our efforts and support in these final weeks. But I do feel that things are going well in terms of blunting these attacks on democracy and that if we can have a democratic election, that we'll win. Okay, Steve, so I'm listening. I'm sitting here, I'm like nodding. (laughs) And I'm saying, I get all that, but... I still feel this part of me that just does not want to let go of my skepticism and fears, doesn't want to get my hopes up, not just because of like 2016 PTSD, because if you read and listen to a lot of articles and reports in mainstream media, that's just not what we're hearing. That's just now still how they're not, they're just not portraying things the way that you do. Right. Yeah. Now, again, you're not alone. I saw the phrase um, post-2016 post-traumatic stress disorder mm-hmm. in terms of what people are actually grappling with. So fundamentally is that too many people in the media are not color conscious or color competent in a world where color is a driving factor around behavior and electoral and social outcomes. And so they're looking at the wrong colors from an electoral standpoint. Right? It's not about red states or blue states or purple states. It's about the color of the people in the population. One of the most predictive factors, if not the single most predictive factor of how someone is going to vote is what racial group they're in, right? I mean, African-Americans, crystal clear about the fundamental anti-black racism of the Republicans, vote nearly 90% Democratic always. And at the other end of the spectrum, the majority of white voters have never voted for a Democrat for president since Lyndon Johnson said to a nationally televised audience in 1965 that we shall overcome 
and then proceeded to sign the Voting Rights Act. So for 55 years, majority of white voters have had a very different definition of we and that we shall overcome. And so without a race-specific analysis, you can't properly appreciate what's happening in this election. But you do still hear them talking all the time in generic terms about, you know, the voter, quote unquote. But that obscures the underlying dynamics of what's really going on and who may or may not be shifting. So you can get a much clearer, more accurate, more calming picture by looking at the situation of the respective racial groups in terms of how they most likely vote and what we're learning from them. And so then I would really recommend to people that you know, to, to keep your sanity to, and to get insightful information, I really encourage you to read and follow Ron Brownstein of The Atlantic and CNN. He was on our podcast back in March and to watch and follow Joy Reid of MSNBC, right? The Readout is her show. Both of them have very clear, race-conscious and data-driven takes on what's happening in politics. Okay, great. That's, that's actually helpful. I can almost feel like my blood pressure lower a little bit and my, my breath get a little bit less tight. Let's fill in some of the details and see what the data actually shows and can tell us about whether we're going to win to do that, let's bring in our data doctor, Dr. Julie Martinez Ortega, and let's see if we can get her on the line. Please hold for Dr. Martinez Ortega. Hey y'all, Julie here. Hi Julie, thanks for joining us. We're going to need your doctor skills today to help relieve me <laughs> and many other people of the anxiety and stress that they're having about the election and what's going to happen on election day. And I hear that one of the antidotes to this stress and anxiety is actual data. Happy to help. Okay, so first of all, uh, just to let everyone know, um, and we've talked about this before, the three of us, uh, me, you, and Steve, we've worked hard on Steve's book a um, number of years ago, his book, Brown is the New White. And in that book, we analyzed, interpreted, and explained decades of data and trends about U.S. politics and the country's demographic trends. So, Steve, can you reground us in that framework and explain how it applies to what has happened these past three, almost four years under Trump? Absolutely. So let's reground ourselves in the fundamental dynamics, which have not changed, even though a lot of the media has kind of lost perspective, and a lot of analysts have lost perspective around the underlying realities of what's going on in the country. So let's start, we have to begin all this analysis by reaffirming that we have always had the majority, always. 2008 election was the inflection point, and the population has been trending in our direction ever since. Right, so as we call them the both the new American majority. It's what elected and re-elected Obama, and it consists of the vast majority of people of color and what I call a meaningful minority of whites, somewhere using the 37 to 39% range of whites. That's the majority of people and voters in this country. And even in 2016, which is completely lost to many uh, people who analyze this, Clinton got 3 million more votes than Trump did. He's never had majority support. And even in the three states that gave him the electoral college, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, he didn't have majority support there either. Clinton's vote plus the third and fourth party votes had the most votes. So this president has never had majority support. The majority has always been in our, in our direction. It's very important to hold on to that. Second, 
the clear trend since November 2016 has been what we've been calling at the Black Student Color the return of the majority. Right. If you look at the special elections in 2017, where Democrats either won or came very close in districts that they had not previously been competitive in, winning back the House in 2018 with the 40 House seat pickups, flipping several governor's offices over the past three years, the new American majority has been winning elections coast to coast since the beginning of 2017. Yeah, that's that's definitely encouraging. But uh, I want to answer the question, like, what if people are asking, okay, the primary foundation of our analysis and um, data is based on our Brown is a New White work, which was done back in 2016, which was actually often even based on some data that came from earlier results than 2016. So, Julie, what can you tell us about the electorate currently in 2020, what does it look like? Well, basically, the electorate is even more diverse and more favorable, right, to progressives than today than it was back in 2016. So as Steve likes to say with his fondness for rhyming, the country's getting browner by the hour, right? Because U.S. immigration policy was so racially restrictive for most of U.S. history, the fact is that most older people are white and most younger people are people of color, especially children, right? Asian Americans couldn't even become U.S. citizens until 1965. The Latino population has grown 600% since 1970, right? So you think about that and the impact it has on the composition of the country, and it makes sense. So what that means for this election is that since 2016, we've got 15 million young people who've turned 18 since then and become eligible to vote. And the part that we don't talk about is that about 12 million people are no longer with us. They've passed away, most of them older, most of them white. The electorate of 2020 is the most racially diverse ever in this country. 33% of all the eligible voters are going to be people of color this year. And that's up from 29% back in Obama's 2012 election. And furthermore, uh, Trump's base is essentially non-college educated whites, and especially men and um, working class whites in general, right? There's an excellent episode of the podcast NPR Politics on September 3rd, where Domenico Montanaro analyzed the trends with the white working class voters. So he points out in that episode that uh, the sector of the population that is this sort of white working class has dropped from 45% of the eligible voters overall in 2016 down to just 41% today, right? So they're shrinking as a share of the electorate. And as quiet as it's kept, not all of them vote for Trump. So his base is actually smaller than that 41% figure. So Julie, I'm hearing all that and all of that sounds like great news, but I do want us to also talk about the fact that the, there is this question or concern that I hear often, that there's this pervasive fear that there are going to be white people who maybe didn't vote at all in 2016 and that in general, they're going to come out in droves and the people, the white people who did vote in 2016 for Trump will come out in droves and that we progressive and Democrats just hold on to, many of us hold on to this fear that there will be these white people who are so terrified about the possibility of this country getting taken over by progressives. And let's just say it primarily, their fear is that this country is going to be taken over by 
people of color, they get so fired up by Trump's racism, his rhetoric, that they're just going to come out of the woodwork in some sort of fierce and furious fashion to do everything they can to make sure that he wins to keep this country white dominated again, to keep white supremacy alive. And the fear is that this is going to happen and that we Democrats and progressives are going to get caught off guard. So what do you say to that? You know, I was, I think that, I mean, it's a legitimate fear. That's actually exactly how Trump won Florida. Right? I mean, Julie actually did a autopsy 2016 election. Actually, let me clarify that. Julie is the only person who has done an autopsy of the 2016 election, despite all the other well-funded entities not looking back at it. And it really showed that Trump's margin came from people who had not voted previously, came out of the woodwork and, and backed him and pushed him over the top. Clinton did better than Obama did in Florida. She got more votes than Obama did, but she still lost because all these people came out. And that's also how uh, Brian Kemp uh, barely beat Stacey Abrams in Georgia. Stacey would have been elected governor any other year in the history of this country. But all of these other people were like, we're not going to have that black woman be our governor. And they came out in huge numbers. So it's a real fear. But I'd say two things to it. First, these people who are going to be coming out of the woodwork are in the non-college educated white sector of the population, which, as Julie had said, is shrinking. It's shrinking nationally and it's shrinking in these different states. So you have that. And then second is that they've lost vote college-educated white vote. Because what happened in 2016 is that these people came out of the woodwork and then they joined together with the college-educated whites who were giving Trump a chance. And so there's not enough of them just on their own to be able to tip the election. So I think it's important to hold that understanding of the relative composition of these different parts of the electorate. And then is the other thing that, we've, that we said at the top, right? The electorate is more diverse than it's ever been. So it comes down to a turnout election. If everybody voted, if all their voters came out, and then if all our voters came out, we would win. There's more of us than there are of them. But getting people to the polls in large and overwhelming numbers is the imperative of the next seven weeks. Right. And that's just the starting point for the 2020 election, right? So on top of the demographic advantage that the Dems begin with, there's been significant movement among the college-educated whites towards Biden and the Dems overall, which is further increasing the Democratic margins. Let me just interject here to say that it was the judgment of black people in the primaries to back and pick Biden because they knew he would do well with those white voters, right? Black folk know how white folk think. They saw Trump's racism and sexism, which has really been a underappreciated part of what happened in 2016, looked at the prejudice in the electorate and said, well, let's go get ourselves a white dude, right? And it actually reminds me of when I was practicing law, that I was up against this, you know, I was a racial discrimination suit. I had a black client, Iris Archuleta, and me and Amy Uzakuma as the lawyers. And so we said, we had to go to court. We had to deal with these different, you know, stand in front of these white judges. And I was like, I'm going to get myself a white person to stand next to me, right? So I actually hired a white lawyer. I mean, he actually helped with research or whatever, but I had this old white guy who'd come be part of our operation because of the realities of racism in our society. And I think that's exactly what the, what the black voters did in the primary. They chose Biden because they thought that we had to navigate the racism and sexism in the electorate and the numbers that Julia is talking about. It's actually playing out as people anticipated. And then on top of all that, we've now got this global pandemic, something we didn't even have during the primaries right here. So that the, we've had the supposed leader of the free world, the head of this country, 
turning his back on dismissing, walking away from this literal 100-year pandemic that's killed almost 200,000 people. And so that's affecting, I think, a lot of the college-educated whites as well. Where it's like, this is not how a, a country is supposed to function or how a government is supposed to operate. And so that's had a big impact in peeling off their support from him as well. Yes, absolutely. According to the exit polls, college-educated whites narrowly favored Trump in 2016 by three points. But in the latest Monmouth University poll, Trump's actually losing among that sector by 21 points, which is just an astounding reversal of fortune. Yeah, I just, I will take that fortune. <laughs> very, very, I, I will take that reversal and then we will take that fortune because we need it every bit that we can get. No, that is something I feel like we don't hear about enough. I think it's interesting how some Republican whites even are reaching their limits. Like even they have a threshold, some and hopefully, you know, increasingly more. I know that I really feel like it is useful to look at the trends, and I'm glad that we covered some of them. Now, Julie, how does it look on the ground right now, less than 50 days out from the election? Basically, in a nutshell, just tell us, how are we going to win? Well, first, y'all are right that much of the media has the wrong lens in assessing the election. So let me just offer a different way to think about it. To me, it's like Thanksgiving dinner. And it all depends on who shows up and how many from, you know, which wing of the family show up, right? So let's say you have a family of about 20 people and you invite them all over for Thanksgiving dinner. It's coronavirus time, so you have a big backyard where you can have socially distanced Thanksgiving. So 14 of those family members follow science. They wear their masks. They stay six feet apart. They're being very conscientious about avoiding any problems. But meanwhile, you've got six of those family members who think that COVID is a hoax. They're refusing to wear their mask. You know, they're just hugging on people and stuff. So at the start of the evening, there's going to be a vote about whether everyone should wear their masks or not. So let's think about it, right? If everybody shows up, all those 20, the safety and science wing of the family will prevail, right? Because you got 14. But let's say all of your six anti-maskers show up, right? And just a few of your science-following family members. Then you're going to have a problem, right? And that's the battle that we're facing. Right. Now, to add on top of that, in terms of the way this election is playing itself out, it'd be like the anti-maskers and their friends were out there letting the air out of the tires of the science people, giving wrong directions to the house, claiming the turkey is poisoned, et cetera. So it's, that's the context and the environment that this election is playing itself in. So we have to surmount all of that. Y'all are painting the worst picture of a <laughs> gathering ever. It's like, I usually, Thanksgiving is usually one of my favorite holidays. And I, if that was my Thanksgiving gathering, I would be pretty sad. <laughs> so, okay, so we've got a pitch battle, this election that's about to take place. But we, people of color and progressive whites, meaningful handful of whites, <laughs> And this includes all the people who consistently vote Democratic. I understand, you know, we have the majority. We have the majority nationally. Steve is always reminding everyone Clinton won the popular vote, but because our presidential elections are not decided by majority vote and are instead based on an electoral college system, I'm wondering, Julie, how do you think this is all going to play out in the swing states, which a lot of people say, you know, and there have been some funny memes or comedians who joke about it, which is that's great what you all are voting for, but it really comes down to these states and you're not in them. So people are definitely aware that 
swing states really matter. So what do you say about that? So again, Biden is uh, in a very strong position. So the New York Times did a poll with Siena College of four of the swing states, and it found Biden leading by an average of six points there, right? Not only is he leading in the three Midwestern states that Clinton lost, right, those blue wall states, but he's also tied or leading in four of the other swing states, which are Arizona, Florida, Georgia, and North Carolina. And it's for slightly different reasons in each state. Again, who exactly shows up at Thanksgiving, right? But Wisconsin is wider than most battleground states, and it has one of the highest percentages of working class whites in the state. So you need to have actually more than 37% of the white vote there to win. And historically, the Wisconsin whites tend to vote more progressive than the national average, right? And don't forget that Trump's Wisconsin margin of just 20,000 votes came from 250,000 voters that switched in Wisconsin to third or fourth party candidates in 2016. In Wisconsin right now, Biden's currently leading overall by five points. And if we go over to Arizona, just a surprise to many, they have the lowest percentage of white working class voters, which is just 33% of their electorate, right? And there, nearly a quarter of all the voters are Latino. Biden is leading there by five points in the polling average that is kept by the Nate Silver 538.com folks. And then if we go over to Georgia, we see that black voters are key there. They're 30% of all the voters. And there in Georgia, Biden is behind by just 1% right now. So again, it's all who shows up, the specific composition of the family, how it looks going to be a little different depending on whether you're in Wisconsin, Arizona, or Georgia. But what is undeniable and is the greatest source of hope for us is that Biden is actually leading in far more places than he actually needs to be. Bottom line is if the election were held today, according to that 538 forecast, which probably incorporates the most data points of just about anybody out there who's forecasting, Biden would win 330 electoral votes to Trump's 208. And remember, you need 270 electoral votes to win the White House. So Biden would be in. Yeah, that's all good to hear. And um, I'm going to try to remember <laughs> all those numbers and hope that they at least stay that way or get better. One of the things I wanted to talk about is that it seems that Trump's strategy really appears to be to seize on protests against police brutality and scare white suburbanites into thinking that Biden won't hold back the marching hordes of people of color. The articles that I've seen, reporters are taking, like basically giving a lot of credence to this strategy and the viability of it by Trump. And Steve, I wanted to ask you, do you think it's working and what can you say about that? Well, fortunately, and maybe even a little bit surprisingly, it's not, right? And so uh, said Herndon at the New York Times is an excellent piece he wrote on September 13th, looking at how Trump's racist appeals are playing in Minnesota, right, which really was the epicenter of a lot of this year's protests, right, after the murder of George Floyd, where they had the protest, they had the whole defund the police um, demand, and then the, they actually voted around uh, scaling back the resources for the police department. And then that's the state that Trump came closest to winning that he didn't win in 2016. So they have actually invested a lot of hope in trying to flip um, Minnesota. So here's just a little bit of what Stead wrote in his piece. They analyzed the polls and they interviewed a lot of people there. He writes, quote, if any state is positioned to go from blue to red in 2020 to embrace the fullness of Trumpology and provide the president some much needed electoral college insurance, it is Minnesota. At this moment, however, most 
evidence indicates that the president is in a worse position in 2020 than where he finished in 2016. Biden leads Trump by nine percentage points in the state, more than five times the small margin Hillary Clinton won the state by four years ago. Then instead goes on to talk about the voters that they had interviewed there. And he writes, several of the voters in suburban and rural regions that are bellwethers for the state described rejecting Mr. Trump's pitch about law and order and focusing on themes Mr. Biden has tried to stress, decency, experience, and Mr. Trump's handling of the coronavirus pandemic. So that's his quote, right? And I think that that dynamic is playing itself across the country. And that's why Biden is leading. You know, I just add that I think what Trump is trying to do is to, well, it's really what he's done his whole career around trying to fan the flames of racial hatred to promote himself. And it's also trying to replicate Richard Nixon's 68 law and order campaign, I think after the civil rights movement and the protests there, those in a very different environment. It's one thing to appeal to white fears when whites are almost 90% of the population. It's another thing entirely from an electoral and mathematical standpoint when whites are just 60% of the population. But so Trump is still trying to trot out the old songs when the audience has changed, as has its musical taste. And Osmond Brothers' playlist won't do in a Beyonce world. If you're under a certain age, you can Google the Osmond Brothers. Yeah, good. check out some of their songs. Uh, see, what do you say to people, though, who say, you know what, the Dems are just going to F it up? <laughs> It's, uh, you know, that they feel like they've seen the writing on the wall and it just feels all too late to correct course. And they, you know, they feel like the Dems followed the wrong strategies and that they're um, not on the right track and it's too late. Yeah, I would just say two things real quick in that. One is the pandemic changes the landscape. Um, and as we have talked about, large portions of white voters have rejected Trump. And that's very clear and consistent trend really ever since ever since he took office. And so that expands the margin, frankly, the margin for error. And then lastly, I would just say that, you know, I'm actually been either somewhat pleasantly surprised or pleasantly not horrified at how they're actually doing the campaign and on Biden's campaign in particular, right? And they picked Kamala. They went to Kenosha after Jacob Blake was um, killed, both Biden and Kamala and her Chuck Taylor who went to uh, Wisconsin. And they're overwhelming Trump on the, on the airways with their spending and whatnot. So as a tactical matter in terms of the campaign, they're doing most of the right things. They're building on these trends that are in our favor. And I think that we are on course to win. But again, the biggest danger is the voter suppression. Yeah, speaking of that, real quickly, and I know it's a big topic, what is it that we can do? What's, you know, what's being done now? Right. So again, it's to the, the scale and scope and ferocity of the attacks is really kind of breathtaking. That there's like $100 million in losses that Republicans are waging all over the country. Every single thing that people can do to expand the vote, they're suing to stop. They're talking about and are planning to recruit 50,000 so-called monitors to come to the polls and basically intimidate people. And then just this massive disinformation campaign that's going on. So really the job is to back and support groups who are fighting that voter suppression and back and support people and groups who are helping people navigate these obstacles to voting, particularly in the context of the pandemic and change rules, et cetera. So I'll just recommend two specific resources, right? So one is Fair Fight, right? The Stacey Abrams had started. And as I was saying, we've done this landscape scan around who's doing what, where. Everyone kept coming back to the key group, which is doing a lot of the core coordination and going toe to toe in all of these different states around the voter suppression is Fair Fight. 
And so people should support Fair Fight. And the other is uh, Vote Save America, uh, which is the, from the Pod Save America people. They're a very user-friendly site for individuals who are looking for ways to plug in. And they're raising money and funneling it to key groups. Right, Our friends at PowerPack are one of the featured groups that they're lifting up. And so those are two key resources I think people can access and support that will be um, critical and helpful in these final days. And then just personally, becoming, uh, become as obnoxious and relentless as possible while making sure everyone you know votes and votes early in whatever state in the country that they're in. Okay, so we've offered in this episode some data and analysis as antidotes to the stress and anxiety related to the election. And I wanted to leave people with us talking about one or two things each of us is doing to stay calm and maintain our mental health during this time. Yeah, I was, I was, I was starting to say that I hadn't even realized how much my Saturday morning runs are, you know, a real balm and calming for me. So because the air was so bad, I was not going to run last Saturday. And that it was so disorienting. I was like, well, I've run lots of Saturdays. How long has it been since I haven't and actually went and did the math? And I had run 59 straight Saturdays. Wow. Um, and so, awesome. so I strapped on my N95 mask and did a very short run to keep my streak going. I can't believe when you told me that, I was like, how do you even run with it? And... <laughs> 95 mass. Well, you certainly can't t- drink water, that's for sure. So, I did, But just getting out and do it in the Golden Gate Park and the lakes and water and trees. And so that's really a very key part of my um, staying sane. Julie, how about you? Well, for me, I have to say it's my two beagles that really help keep me sane, even if at times they drive me crazy, right? So they never let me forget that they have a schedule and they insist that we follow it by literally hounding me until I take them outside for a walk (laughs) or I feed them, which is what they always want. And really nothing beats walking two beagles for getting smiles out of strangers and people just, you know, heading down the street. And we've also done a few camping trips since the... uh, um, state parks and the campgrounds reopened around here. And up till then, um, my phone tracker actually showed where I'd been, you know, kind of has your little history on it. And I had not driven on more than about five streets since wow. the stay-at-home orders began. <laughs> so it was fun to kind of break out and, you know, get my car out on the highway, get the camper all packed up and go spend some time at the beach and in the in the mountains. For me, and definitely during these past several weeks where me and my family, we could not go outside at all. And we live in a very small apartment and we couldn't even open the windows. So it was really the ultimate test. Like talk about a pressure cooker. It's like, you can't even open the window to stick your head out. It has definitely been helpful to take online exercise classes. I've been taking online yoga classes and I've been keeping up or very much trying to and relatively successfully keeping up with my regular workout schedule about three times a week. And that includes taking live workout classes by Zoom, which I'm, I'm really starting to dig because I don't have to like drive to the gym. Mm-hmm. And I'm still taking these um, great classes through my trainer's company. I'm going to do a quick plug, plant-based fitness. And I'm plugging it because it is awesome. And it's a Black-owned business in Oakland that is plant-based. And it's owned by my amazing trainer, Gary Whitaker. And if not for his classes during this pandemic period, I just don't know what kind of shape I would be in right now physically and mentally, as well as my family, because as my family knows, when I work out, I am easier to deal with afterwards. So shout out to Gary and his business partner and trainer, Bree. 
uh, because I appreciate them. And even though by like the 30th or 40th push up or burpee, I'm just like, hey, I'm hating. I have to admit during it, I'm like, I so want to stop. This sucks. I don't love it during it. But afterwards, I'm so, so I feel so much better. So during the staff meetings, we can say, Charlene, have you done your workouts? Um, yes, because that would help keep me accountable. Right. And the same thing, there was this interview that Biden campaign did with Kamala and Obama. It's like this five-minute clip. And the thing they keep coming back to is the importance of the regular exercise daily, mm-hmm. right? Just to kind of keep yourself grounded. So I thought that was very interesting. Okay, that's all the time we have today. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. If you haven't yet joined our mailing list, you can sign up at democracyincolor.com. Please help us get the word out about this podcast. We approach our one-year anniversary by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang and April Elkier, recorded virtually with the expert assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, take deep breaths, go for long walks, do Zoom exercise, replay this podcast, give some time and money to the key groups we mentioned, and keep the faith. 